Well, what a blessing uh, it is to have a house full. I was so blessed this morning as we, as I was sitting here before the service began, and to see the people streaming in the door to, and for what? For what? I guess it's the question. Truly, you know, it is to worship. I was just so blessed to consider the fellowship and the blessing it is to be together and to have a Savior who loves us and we can come to Him and worship and we can be together this way and uh, bless each other. It's a great encouragement, by the way, for me just to hear you worship. I think it's we uh, we do so um, stretch one another in our time of worship. Well, let's uh, turn to our study in the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, for those who are not normally here with us, uh, we've be- we've been studying uh, from the beginning of the Gospel of John to uh, we have arrived here at John seven. I want to look at our text this morning from John 7, verse 1 through verse 24. And uh, this morning, it was a, as I was preparing and as I was looking at it earlier this week, it was, this passage seems a little different from chapters 5 and chapter 6 when there was a, um, there was something particular that was going on at the time. Um, and of course, there is here too, but it's just not as in our face. Uh, in John 5, if you remember, there was the healing um, there of the man by the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, and the animosity and the opposition that came out of that. Uh, then you, you would come to chapter 6, and we have the feeding of the 5,000 uh, there by the Sea of Galilee, and the discourse on um, the bread of life, where Jesus was taking the opportunity, as he, as we've seen in chapter six, where he miraculously fed these five thousand people, and then taking the opportunity to build on that and speak about the bread which comes down from heaven, and the discourse. Uh, on the bread of life. And he then identified himself as the bread, as that true bread which comes down from heaven, that if anyone does not eat of this bread, he will die. He has no life in him. And at the end of chapter 6, we see at the conclusion of his teaching, finds many of his followers forsaking him. Many of the disciples who were following after Christ forsook him. Uh, We see Peter's response to Jesus' question there in uh, chapter 6, verse 67. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? And we see Peter responding, with, well, 
Lord, to whom would we go? To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, that was where we ended last time. This morning, I want to title this, Who is Who in John 7? Who is Who in John 7? Uh, I want to read the text here from verses 1 through verse 24. And consider with me that there's, there's about six months or so between um, the John 6 and John 7, something like that. And we have these markers, which John, as I pointed out earlier, these markers that John used were these feast days that the Jews had and observed. And that is how we know that, for instance, verse 2 says the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. And in John 6 and verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And John does this in numerous places. But here we see that that's roughly an interval of about six months uh, between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. So if you would follow along here in chapter 7 in verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacle or the Feast of Tabernacles, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. 
Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I have made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so as we consider this passage you know, there's not that particular event to focus us, ourselves on as it was in both chapter 5 and chapter 6. Except possibly we could look at this, um, this Feast of Tabernacles. But after these things, as it begins here in chapter, in chapter 7, verse 1, After these things, most likely referring to what is recorded in chapter 5, which happened in Judea. So so notice that the the thought here is presented to us that, that Jesus walked in Galilee. He ministered in Galilee, but he did not want to walk. In contrast, he did not want to spend time in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Does this mean that there were no Jews in Galilee? No. No, there were plenty of Jews in Galilee, but there was, an, there was an occasion that happened in John chapter 5 in verse, verse 16 and verse 18. And here, here is the, 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 uh, the fallout, so to speak, from the event where the, the sick man who had an infirmity for 38 years lay beside this pool. And Christ intentionally, I believe, healed him on the Sabbath day. He, he, made a, he made a point of doing so. Because if you go back to chapter, uh, chapter 7, and this, this idea of going up to Jerusalem or not going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus says, well, my time is not yet come. You know, I'm on a, I'm on a divine time schedule. I am, I am divinely moving according to the schedule that is prearranged for me by my Heavenly Father, I believe is the intent there. And so for Jesus to heal a man on the Sabbath, that's not just a, a, a coincidence. It's sovereign God working out and instigating this, this opposition, so to speak. Isn't it interesting that Christ never once shied away from you know, the, the troubles that came from His ministry? He just, he just bravely marched ahead. And, and if you even... And let me, let me just point out what happened here uh, in verse 16 where uh, Jesus was, in a sense, we, we could go back um, to where, verse 12, where the Jewish authorities said, Uh, Verse 12 said to this man, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And and then uh, Jesus found him afterward and spoke with him and told him to sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And then in verse 16 of chapter 5, For this reason the Jews persecuted him. They persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. 
But then Jesus, instead of backing down, he just simply answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And so as we remember this occasion, the Jews were very angry that he had just kind of walked over their traditions and kind of walked over their, their, uh, their own uh, interpretation, so to speak, of, of the Mosaic Law. And he faced the consequences, and I think that is where verse seven, uh, chapter, one, ver- chapter 7, verse 1, is referring back to that after these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And these were the religious authorities. They were the ruling authorities of maybe the Sanhedrin or, um, yes, it was this sort of, of animosity that came at him. And if you read even a cursory look at John 7, it's amazing to me. John 7, what, you know, Christ was a lightning rod of, of, of could we say, opposition. He was a, he was, he was a, he really stirred the pot. He, he, he was in a, a, uh, an environment that, well, it was anti-God. Even though they were a very religious organization, a very religious country, a very religious people, when Christ came there, it was just, he, he, he was, he, as he says elsewhere, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring the sword to divide between father and son and, and mother and daughter, etc. And we see that here. So, as I was saying, it doesn't mean here in in verse 1 that there were no Jews in Galilee, but simply that there were the Jewish authorities of Judea that were out for him. They were looking to kill him. And then in verse 2, we have this statement, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. That is the setting or the occasion of the events of chapter 7. And I think it's important that we, if, if, if John seen it fit to put it here, I think it's important that we recognize it and talk about it a bit. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles is also called a Feast of Booths. Uh, it's a seven-day festival. And, and you might... If you read about it in Leviticus 23, it might confuse us a bit about, because it speaks about the eighth day. And what it is, it started on a Sabbath, and I think it was the seventh month on the 15th day, that it was instituted by God back in Exodus already. And the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day festival that went from starting on Sabbath, and it went to the next Sabbath, and then it was a uh, that second Saturday, Sabbath would have been the eighth day, thereby making it uh, almost like an eight-day festival. But it speaks about being in booths or tabernacles for seven days. Um, also in Exodus 23 and verse 16, it calls it the Feast of Ingathering. And it was one of the 
of the three feasts of the year that were mandatory for all Israelite males to make the journey to the temple. It was the, uh, it was the feast, it was the, the Passover, it was the Pentecost, and then the, and then it was the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. So, it was a mandatory, um, it was compulsory that the, the Israelite males were to go three times a year, not without offering, to the temple. And so, we have this backdrop of why his brothers were even interested in going to Jerusalem is because it was feast time. It was, it was time for the Israelite males to make the pilgrimage and make the journey up to Jerusalem. And the people made these tent-like structures. You know, it, it, similar to what I would have made when I was a boy, playing out in the woods, and we made a fort. And we had, you know, we took bows and we, we bent them over, made roofs and sides, and, and they lived in there for seven days. And it commemorated the exodus from Egypt and their wilderness journeys. That's what it was meant to do, is to commemorate God's provision out of Egypt and Him providing for them as they journeyed through the wilderness. And so, as we think about that, it was a feast of rejoicing before the Lord. It also celebrated the, the, uh, the autumn harvest, not the spring wheat harvest, but the the in-gathering at the end of the summer. And so it would have been an occasion, what we call somewhere around September or October. Um, and it, it was a celebration of the, the last in-gathering of the harvest. And according to the Jewish historian, Josephus, it was, it was the most popular of these three main feasts in the Jewish calendar. And so... That is a bit of the backdrop here uh, of, of John 7. I want to go back and read in the Levitical account what God's intent was here. In, uh, and just, just bear with me and, and, and follow. In Leviticus 23, in verse 39 through 43, it reads this way. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days. Seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, if you caught some of those words that God was telling them, I want you to rejoice. 
I want you to rejoice before me for seven days. I'm, I'm, I'm setting aside this festival for you to engage in rejoicing in my provision. And he says, you are to celebrate it. What do we do when we celebrate? We have a party, don't we? It was, it was, a, it was an opportunity to rejoice in the goodness of the Lord. It was an opportunity to recount to your friends and neighbors all that you have ingathered. And you, you celebrate the autumn harvest. What was it if it was not a festival of rejoicing in the provisions of God that he had provided for them that year? It was absolutely that. It was a celebration of God's provision. Remember what Peter said on the, in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, do you remember what he said? When he seen Moses and Elijah speaking there with, with, with Jesus, Peter's response was, oh, it's good to be here. Remember? Let's make us some booths. Let's make a tabernacle. So, so the, I, I think it, 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 the idea is there that we celebrate something with these booths. The, they, this is a good place to be. Let's build a little hut here and we're just going to have a celebration right here. It's interesting that, he, that, that his mind goes there. Let's make a tabernacle for you. One for Elijah. And one for, was it Moses? Well, interestingly, it's, it just, I, I believe what it does is it shows us that this was a festival of excitement, a festival of rejoicing, a festival of, of provision and, and, and harvest. Well, now consider with me where it says in John 1 in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled, among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt. That's the word for tent. He tented among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This was none other than Jesus Christ, who tabernacled with us and remember if you go back when God wanted to meet with his people in the wilderness he built a tabernacle of meeting right and that's where he was interested in meeting with his people and fellowshipping with them and it's where all the worship and the service of God was was accomplished at this tabernacle of meeting in the wilderness this tabernacle of witness but now in the new covenant, we have Christ coming, God in the flesh, tabernacling with us to fellowship with us. And so he dwelt. Now, I want to just read Colossians 2 and 16 and 17 as we consider this tabernacle, this festival of tabernacles, this, this feast of tabernacles or booths. And in this chapter 2 of Colossians, we have this wonderful, wonderful outlay of the gospel and how that our 
handwriting of debt was nailed to His cross. And, and we bear it no more as we sang this morning. It was contrary to us. And He's, nailed, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now then, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance, you see, is of Christ. So for us, brothers and sisters, I don't know if I have something that I can cast a shadow with. So we have a shadow, children, on this wall. You see, we have a shadow. So if, if the feast back here, the Feast of Tabernacles, if it's the shadow, Christ is the substance that casts the shadow. You see, it would be so foolish for us to embrace the Feast of Tabernacles and disregard the substance, would it not? I mean, we don't, we don't embrace our wife's shadow, do we? No. Of course not. Okay, so that, my friends, is the backdrop of John 7. You see that in John 7 and verse 2 it says that these people who were trying to kill Jesus Christ, who, were sought, who sought actively to kill Him, to find an excuse to destroy Him, it was their Feast of Tabernacles. It was that feast whereby they were supposed to celebrate the provisions of God. You see the, the contradiction. They embraced the shadow but they disregarded the substance. You know why? Because he did not come the way they thought he should. And we'll see why they did not embrace him. John 7 has this, has this for us here. And so as I mentioned, John 7 is a chapter that is full of opposition to Christ from first verse to last verse. We see... We see that these very same Pharisees and rulers of the Jews that it refers to in verse 2. In verse 47 it says, Then the Pharisees answered these, these officers who came back, who, who said, well, they asked, well, why did you bring him in? Well, never a man spoke like this man did. And they said, really? And verse 47 we have their response to them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in Him? You, you see that arrogant, prideful attitude. But this crowd that does not know the law, they are accursed. But Nicodemus stands out and he says, Does, anyone, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? You, you see the antagonism that... It's just, Front and center here. Are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no good prophet. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. 
But along with all this opposition we see in John chapter 7, we also see just plain confusion. A lot of just plain confusion. Notice verse 12. In verse 12 it says, And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is this, another said he is that. You see, there's, there was just a lot of dissension and a lot of confusion about who this Jesus Christ is. Some said he is good, others said no, he's a deceiver. However, they were afraid to speak out their opinion because of the Jewish authorities. Notice 25 and 20 through 27. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he's speaking boldly. He's preaching and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. You, you see just confusion. In verse 31 you have it also. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Verse 41, Others said, This is the Christ, but some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? You see, we just have it over and over here. Verse 44, we have it. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. It's just all over the, all over the field here. All over... Uh, all the whole spectrum of, well, he could be this, or he could be that, or, you know. But their question is, who is who in John 7? Well, first of all, I want to notice these people of religion. That is, these, these very Jews who sought to kill him. The very same people who were given this blessed festival to celebrate and rejoice in the God who blessed them. They wanted to kill the Son of God. Now my question is, how do we know what these professors are like? We, we live in an environment very similar, don't we? We can't. Are there, we're, there's, there are churches on every corner. There are many people who profess, who are very religious, and so we have this picture here in John 7 where those who were religious, they had a God-given festival, but they completely disregarded the, the, the substance of the festival. Well, I want to submit to you as we look here, how do we know who they are, these religious professors? How was their hatred and animosity revealed. We have it right here in the passage. How were, was it revealed? Well, I want, to, I want to remind you that when Jesus was speaking to His brothers here, notice what He said in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates Me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You know, it stood out to me that Jesus preached about sin. He did, didn't He? 
It was uncovered. Their hatred and animosity were stirred up and uncovered because Jesus uncovered their sin. He took the cloak off of their sinful behavior. Their works were evil. And in defining the world, Jesus says, so if we want to know who the world is, Jesus said, it is those who hate me. Notice what he says there. The world hates me. That's that's who the world is. That's what the world does. And the reason that it hates Christ is because it loves its sin. It loves its sin. Jesus testified of the world that its works were evil. And by the way, this is still true today. As we consider how do we uncover How do we know who is who in John 7? Or who is who here? Who is who where you are? Brothers and sisters, it is all about your attitude towards sin. That's how we know who is who. Because see, we are all sinners, but some of us don't want to admit it. Some of us are angry because you're talking about me. Maybe, you know, we don't want our sin uncovered. But truly, truly, the attitude one has towards sin uncovered and rebuked is the mark of who is who. That's the mark of who is who. Notice, secondly, that we have Jesus' own family here. His brothers, in verse 3, His brothers therefore said to Him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. So maybe He had been... uh, There was some thought um, at some point, which I'm not sure which... There's a feast mentioned. Um, let me see. I think it was actually the. I'm trying to remember if there was a uh, yes, John five. There's this feast mentioned. So we don't know which feast it was. It doesn't say for sure. But one writer thought that there was maybe as much as about a year and a half from the time that he had been in Jerusalem before, to the time that he now went up to this feast of tabernacles. And uh, his brothers are saying, you know, if, if, you, want to, if you want to glorify God and, 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 you know, show who you are, go up to Judea. Maybe he maybe was motivated by the thought that the followers of Galilee in chapter 6 had all forsaken him. Maybe that's what was going on there. But whatever it is, whatever their intent is, I think it's primarily sarcasm. It is the idea that they were kind of mocking. You know, if, if you want to become popular, if you want to become well-known, then don't hide yourself. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Well, Verse 5 tells us clearly that it was unbelief speaking. It was his own family 
It was his own brothers. What is it? Uh, Simon and Joaz and James and Jude. They, they were his brothers. And they, they did not even believe in him. And you, you, can, you can take and notice that, that these brothers grew up knowing about Christ. Knowing about Jesus. Intimately acquainted with him. Yet unbelieving. Yet unbelieving. And Jesus told them, and this is pretty sobering, think about it. The world cannot hate you. You know why the world cannot hate them? It's because they were of the world. It's because they were of the world. In uh, Psalm 69, in verse 7, it says, Because for your sake I have born reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. A wonderful prophecy of the Lord Jesus. Well, listen, Many of us here have, have been zealous for the cause of Christ. Many, many, many of us. There's probably nothing more painful than to have your family turn against you. It's hardly anything more difficult in being willing to go out from among them and be ye separate if it's your family. And for his brothers to mockingly and to uh, exhort him to go up to Judea. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll never gain notoriety if you stay here. Go to Jerusalem. That's where everything happens. But he was unbelief. Rank unbelief. Fortunately, praise God, we see that later these brothers of Christ came to faith. Let me say here that Jesus told them the world cannot hate you. And remember what he also said in Luke 6.26 where he says, Woe if all men speak well of you. And we see here that close proximity to the things of God does not from the world divide. It doesn't. You can be in the house of God. You can be in the assembly, and be of the world. We see that so clearly here. You can be with Christ physically and not believe in Him. You can be with His people. You can have an ordinance just as well as you can have a festival and embrace the ordinance and be of the world. All of these things can be true. But notice The defining issue is the attitude toward our sin. It hates me because I'm telling them that their works are evil. Well, we see in verse 11, we see this same attitude continue. The Jews sought Him. Once He went to Jerusalem, He went up after His brothers. 
And he went up in secret, so to speak. And the Jews, in verse 11, says they sought him at the feast and said, well, where is he? But it was these same Jews, I believe, that wanted to kill him. Their seeking him out was not for good. And there was much confusion in verse 12 and much courage or much confusion in verse 12 and fear in verse 13. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. That is, no one unless they were not of the world. You see, Christ was not of the world. He was not afraid of the Jews. Notice verse 14. There was a great deal of courage here. Now about the middle of the feast, and if we have an eight-day feast, we have a seven or eight-day feast, you have somewhere about the fourth or the third or fourth day, fifth day, you have Jesus getting up, went up into the temple, and what did He do? He publicly began to preach. And we know what He preached. Because He testified of their works that they were evil. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? Well, that reminds me of what was said in Acts chapter 4 about Peter and John. How do these people know these things never having been schooled? Well, here and, and there it makes the statement they noted that they had been with Jesus. So how does this man know letters having never studied? Simply put, They did not understand. Jesus answered them and said, well, my doctrine or my teaching, okay, my teaching is not mine. It is His who sent me. If anyone wills to do His will. Now, this is probably the most important part of the message. If anyone wills. Here is a... Does anyone will? Romans says there's none that do good. There's no one that seeks after God. But if there is someone who desires to know God, if there's someone who wills to do God's will, if you just simply love the truth, if you just want to know what the truth is, God will give it to you. That's what it says here. He will give it to you. If anyone wills to do His will, he shall know. Now what that simply means is instead of knowing because we've seen, you know, that's what some of these people wanted to do is to see and know. No. It is believe and know. It is trust and you will find them to be true. That's, that is, it's not seeing, it is believing. And so, I want to say here that this doctrine, here in verse 17, or verse 16 and 17, my doctrine is not mine, he says. It is his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know the, concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And I think what he's saying here is if anyone in my audience, he says, wills to do God's will, 
the Spirit of God is going to minister to him knowing that Jesus was not seeking his own glory. Because he goes on to say, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, that is the one who's genuine. That is the one who has no unrighteousness in him. That is the one who is true. And the Spirit of God will witness to you if you have had your will broken. I believe it means broken in regeneration. And it is the same doctrine that Christ is referring to. My doctrine is not mine. That is that same doctrine that we referred to back in John chapter 6, where it says, and it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. See, that doctrine, and that is the teaching that comes right after that verse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. And then it says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. This is, again, that same, that same theme that it just was amazing to me to find here in John 17, or John 7, coming out of John chapter 6, and the difficult sayings, remember? The hard saying, this is a hard saying, they said. Well, it was nothing other than the doctrine of Christ that God had given him to share with them. And he says, if your will is broken to God's will, to do His will, then you will know that I am not speaking of myself. And I, I think that this is, this is the heart and soul of our attitude toward ourself. Okay, so we, 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 we recognize we are sinners and, and we, our will is broken. This is the nature of those who, who tabernacle with Christ. Those who have this attitude of brokenness. Lord, just show me what your will is. Just show me. I want to know the truth. And so as they gloried here, as they gloried here in Moses, we see that they didn't even embrace Moses. Did not Moses give you the law? Christ says, yet none of you keeps the law. Why, why do you seek to kill me? You know why he could say that you glory in the Mosaic law and in the Ten Commandments even. Why are you seeking to kill me? Isn't there a commandment about that? Yes. You shall have no other gods before me is one of them, and you shall not kill. It says very clearly, thou shalt not kill, but they were seeking to kill him. Jesus simply said, Moses gave you the law and you glory in it, I believe is, is the intent here. But why do you seek to kill me? And the people answered and said, You have a demon. There's no one seeking to kill you. It's quite clearly, and that was pretty obvious in other, ver in other chapters. Chapter 5, for instance. And if we go back into Mark 3, his brother said something similar. His brother said, I, forget, I, didn't, I don't think I wrote it down, but his brother said something that he's to the effect that he's out of his mind. You know, it was a time when he was so thronged by the crowd and the multitude that he couldn't even eat. And his family went out and brought him in and said, you know, 
we, we, have to, we have to save him. We have, to, we have to help him out. This man is out of his mind. This was his own family again. But here, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. That is a, going back to that reference in John 5 about the healing of this, of this man by the pool. He said, I did this one work, and you all marvel. I had to think of maybe... Uh, Christ had some influence from the state of Tennessee. When you all marvel. Y'all marvel? <laughs> I, it just came, it came across that way to me. I did one work and y'all marvel. But Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And here is a point that uh, where Christ is telling them, look, you embrace circumcision as Moses gave it to you, but it, circumcision comes before Moses. It was given to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were celebrating and applying circumcision long before Moses was born. And so that's the idea here. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, though it is for, not that it is for Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. They were zealous to keep the ordinance again. That is the overarching theme of these legalistic people. They wanted to embrace the outward form, okay? That's what is going on. But whenever Christ comes along and does something that benefits the whole man, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I have made a man completely well on the Sabbath. You see the logic? He went from the lesser to the greater. If circumcision is beneficial to a man in that the law of Moses doesn't condemn him, what if I healed the whole man on the Sabbath? You embraced that ordinance on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter if he was born on the Sabbath. Eight days later, it's going to be a Sabbath. And if you're going to keep the law, then you're going to have to circumcise this, this, uh, this baby boy on the Sabbath day. And you do it. But when I come along and heal a man completely on the Sabbath day, you have a very real problem with that. So you see the logic here. And then he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. I want to close with that verse. Is that... What is our, where do we get our discernment? What is the, what are the mechanics whereby we judge? Interestingly, we are really strong on Matthew 7 sometimes. In verse 1 through about 5, where it says, Judge not that you be not judged. But that is simply a teaching on how to judge. That is taking the beam out of that is taking the beam out of your eye so that you can behold the speck in your brother's eye. And that doesn't mean that after you've taken the beam out that you are somehow now blind to your brother's speck. No, it is meant that you also are able to reach in there now without hitting him over the head with a two before in your eye. You see, you reach in there and you pull the speck out. 
But we have taken this whole thing of judge not that you be not judged to mean we just should not judge at all. But here we clearly see that it's a wrong understanding of Matthew 7 when we say judge not. Christ says you judge. You need to judge. Just be careful with how you judge. If any man wills to do his will, you see, that's the one who's qualified to judge. Because his heart is broken. He understands that he needs salvation. He understands that he, he, he needed to be saved. But this legalistic mentality that goes about and said, I see, a, a, you know, I see something in your eye with no regard for what I have in my eye, you see. And so these people did not care a whit about the healing of the man at the pool. All they cared about was that their sin be not uncovered. But if your sin is already uncovered and you have repented by the grace of God, now you're qualified to deal with the sins of others, with grace, with comfort, with love, you see. And so we close this morning with this admonition here in in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance. I beg us, let's not just simply be focused on the outward. Let's not be focused on the festival. Let's focus on the substance. Let's find that substance that is Christ Jesus. And then we judge with righteous judgment. We reach into a situation that, is, that we, can, we can actually help someone. We can extend God's grace to a hurting situation. Do not judge just simply by what it looks like, but judge with righteous judgment. And we see that when Christ did that, when He did that, the world hated Him. So even though you judge accurately and you come to the conclusion about your own sin and the sin of another, and maybe you point out someone's sin with grace, with love, and you exhort someone to leave off their evil works and they hate you for it. Now you've discovered you've discovered something. You've discovered that he may have been among us but he may not have been one of us uh, because of this attitude towards sin. And so let's, let's, uh, let's remember that Christ was a lightning rod, so to speak. I mean, it was amazing. The confrontation that he endured, the opposition, and the confusion that came out of his ministry in many cases. But for those who will to do his will, they know of the doctrine. I thank you for your kind attention, and I trust that John 7 might, uh, might hold a few more nuggets for you. Uh, might hold a few uh, more blessings for you as you study and uh, consider His Word.